It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 243 for May 22nd, 2011. Recorded May 20th, a day without rain. Hey, excuse me, Kettle, you've got a call from the pot on line two. Instead of talking about how good it is, Facebook hired a big PR agency to plant negative stories about Google. The story is being reported by the San Jose Mercury News. The agency in question is a big one, Burson Marsteller, and the company is now very embarrassed. Facebook, which has had some serious problems of its own with privacy issues, wanted Burson Marsteller to plant stories that attacked Google for violating the privacy of Facebook users. According to the Mercury News report, Burson Marsteller said that it had undertaken an assignment for Facebook, the PR giant engaging in a crisis management program on its own behalf, then characterized the assignment as something that was not standard procedure. Burson Marsteller also said it should never have accepted the assignment. Google refused to talk about it. The Mercury News account quoted Santa Clara University law professor Eric Goldman. It's like Donkey Kong between Facebook and Google seeking victory by any means. Goldman continued, I'm a little perplexed about why Facebook decided to try and stir the pot through a PR agency. If they wanted to call out Google, then call them out publicly. The Mercury News account is really pretty amusing. It reveals how the plot became public knowledge. Reporter Patrick May says that Burson Marsteller's John Mercurio sent an email to blogger Christopher Zakoyan suggesting that he write an op-ed piece about Google's, and I quote here, well-known history of infringing on the privacy rights of America's Internet users. Zakoyan is a former Federal Trade Commission researcher, and he asked Mercurio who he was working for. Mercurio demurred. Bad decision. As any PR professional should know, that's not a wise thing to do when a reporter starts asking those kinds of questions. Smelling something fishy, reporter May wrote, Segoyan posted the full email text of Mercurio's pitch along with his rejection on the Internet. As for Facebook, May quoted a company statement, the issues are serious, and we should have presented them in a serious and transparent way. So what's this all about, really? Well, money, of course. What else? Both Facebook and Google make a lot of money through online advertising. As a Facebook user, I'm going to interject this personal note. Facebook ads are often for misleading products and services. The political ads that Facebook shows me are rarely for politicians or causes that I support. I find Facebook ads to be uncommonly annoying, and this is one reason I spend little time on Facebook. And now back to the story, already in progress. According to the Mercury News, and I'm quoting here, with its 600 million members, Facebook is increasingly exploiting its treasure trove of personal user data by targeting ads, putting it in conflict with a Mountain View-based search giant. Google co-founder and current CEO Larry Page has told staffers that social networking is something that Google plans to expand aggressively. That apparently made Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, or somebody who reports to him, 
very nervous, and the company did something extremely stupid. Reporter May quoted Roger Kay, an analyst with Endpoint Technologies. This shows the world that Facebook is really focused on Google as its main competitor, which many people might not have fully realized. The nightmare scenario for Facebook is that all the data they've gathered and stored about their members over time could now be threatened by Google. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and what's next. Well, I opened my email and, oh, look, I've won another one million pounds. Well, I must have been in a surly mood when the message arrived. Coca-Cola UK was going to give me a million pounds, the message said. The first and most obvious question is why a company in the UK would give its top prize to someone in the U.S. But let's see what other obvious idiocies the fraudsters thought I wouldn't notice. The message, of course, was a typical fraud, but I haven't dissected one of these for a while, and some people seem to enjoy it when I do, so here goes. Number one, the morons couldn't even bother to forge the from address. The message came from mycokeclaim2011.uk82 at rocketmail.com. Yeah, I'm sure a large company such as Coca-Cola would use a rocketmail address. And then there were no two addresses and the CC line simply showed, recipient list not shown. Now, excuse me for a moment while I suspend disbelief and think that tens or hundreds of thousands of people have each won the grand prize of one million pounds, and that the company that's awarding the prize simply can't be bothered to send individual messages to all of us. Third, my anti-spam software, of course, considered the message to be spam. And fourth, London is four hours ahead of U.S. Eastern Time at this time of the year, but this message claims to have been sent from a location that's eight time zones ahead of GMT. Eight time zones ahead of GMT? Now, what countries are located there? Brunei, parts of China, including Hong Kong, Bali, Nusa Tenggara. Okay, I've never heard of that one. South and East Kalimantan. It's another one I don't know about. And Sulawesi. Actually, all of those, I guess, are in Indonesia. Uh, also, there is Malaysia, Mongolia, Philippines, Singapore, and Taiwan. So, this is where Coca-Cola UK is headquartered? Oh, and the message starts with a batch reference of 2011 slash YY. Why is the year followed by YY? Okay, well, maybe the prize could be awarded outside the UK, but the message continued referring to my email address as, and I quote, This numbers fall within the USA Maryland location file. You are requested to contact our fiduciary agent, USA Barrister dot Peter, with the details below and send your winning information to him by email. Now, I seem to live in Ohio, and actually I don't think I've ever even visited Maryland. Of course, anyone who knows anything about the UK judicial system would know that a barrister wouldn't be involved in settling a lottery claim. There's a physical address on the message, too. It claims to come from 1 Queen Caroline Street, Hammersmith, London, W69HQ. Now, I think that postal code is wrong, because I believe UK postal codes have three characters in each of the two halves. This had only two in the first half. The crooks could have done a little research and found that Coca-Cola Enterprises Limited in the UK is located at 1010A Noble Road, London, N18 3DJ. 
And the message really came from Yahoo, so some poor slob had his or her email account compromised by this bunch of thieves. Oh, and the barrister? Well, I should contact him at bar.peter at gvvra.com. Well, I found that gvvra.com is administered by a Frank Johnson, who supposedly lives in Atlanta, even though the domain name was registered through an Australian registrar. Atlanta! Hmm, that's Coca-Cola's corporate headquarters. So maybe the crooks are getting smarter. Or maybe that was just dumb luck. In any event, Frank Johnson whose name, I suppose, has just been picked out of the blue, lives in what looks like a very nice residential area. And the domain, gvvra.com, was created just last October. It is for Global View Visa Recruitment Agency, which claims to be headquartered in Maryland and have offices in West Africa and China. According to scamwarners.com and fraudwatchers.org and lots of other anti-fraud sites, the company runs an employment agency, Scam, that offers $75 per hour jobs, or $35 per hour if you're an unskilled worker, in developing countries. These are the kinds of places where you get paid a couple of bucks a week, not $75 an hour. The further I dig, the stronger the smell gets, so I guess I won't be applying for that one million pounds that I've won. But I suppose somebody will. <laughs> In the late 1990s, you had a choice of browsers. Netscape was the leader, but Microsoft released the first Internet Explorer in 1995. Over the years, browsers such as Cello, IBM's Web Explorer, Conqueror, SeaMonkey, Opera, and others arrived. Some stayed, most departed. Netscape and IE were left, and came Firefox. Netscape died, Google released Chrome, Apple reworked Conqueror and called it Safari, and today, instead of two browsers, there are actually five pretty good contenders. This isn't a complete review of any of the five. It's just kind of a quick summary of why you might want to download some of these browsers and take a look at them. Remember, you can have as many browsers on your computer as you want, and some sites work better in some browsers. Google Chrome is not my favorite browser, but it is my default browser, and that may cause you to say, what? Okay, if you said that, I understand. Chrome is fast, so it's the browser I'd like to use when I click a link. But there are some compatibility issues, the new word for problems, with Chrome. So it's not the browser that I use for most of the websites that I need every day. Mozilla Firefox has thousands of add-ons, so it is the browser I use most of the time. It's the one that does exactly what I want it to do because I've been able to add the add-ons I want that provide the features that I need. But Firefox checks for a new version of the browser and updates for all of its add-ons every time it starts. I could turn that off, but I really don't want to. As a result, a startup can take an astonishingly long time. The latest version of Microsoft's Internet Explorer, because it's made by Microsoft, integrates fully with the operating system. Now, warning here, that's Windows 7 only. As a result, you can pin websites to the taskbar, so a single click opens the browser and the site. That feature alone isn't enough for me to use IE as my primary or even secondary browser, but it's a good example of how Microsoft can provide useful features when applications are integrated with the operating system. Each pinned site has its own jump list, and depending on the site, 
you might have the option to include a live status information icon as an overlay. And the Rodney Dangerfield of browsers, Opera. The Norwegian developers who created Opera have always believed in following the standards. That's something that Netscape and Microsoft often gave lip service to, but with the underlying emphasis on, well, we set the standards and everybody else must follow our standards. That led Microsoft to create standards and Netscape to create standards. The standards weren't the same. So how are they standard? Opera believes in following the W3C's standard standards. That emphasis on standards has continued, but Opera has never managed to exceed more than a single digit in terms of market penetration. And finally, there's Apple Safari. Safari includes a reader function that removes what Apple calls annoying ads and other visual distractions from online articles. Essentially, this is just a text view that eliminates graphics so you see the text from an article and nothing else. This could be a problem for highly visual websites, but it's a welcome feature for those sites that pop ads over the article you're trying to read or that insist on displaying animated ads. Click the reader icon and the article appears in a single, continuous, clutter-free view. So those are the five browsers you might find. Take a look at one of them. See what you think. In short circuits, in the old days, media gatekeepers controlled the flow of news, and this was a bad, evil thing. Or was it? Back then, there was an effort to provide a fair and balanced view of things, not just to call your coverage fair and balanced. If you were a bleeding-heart liberal, you couldn't entirely avoid a conservative viewpoint, and if you were a conservative, you would find the views of liberals in the presentation. On the Internet, there are no gatekeepers. At least that's the conventional wisdom. Or maybe it's that we are our own gatekeepers. Is that good or is that bad? These days we can choose our own news. Liberals will view reports from MoveOn.org. Conservatives will view reports from FoxNews.com. Now maybe that's okay because they know they're limiting their exposure to viewpoints that match their worldview. But what about those of us who just use Facebook or Google and think we're seeing a representative view of the world? Progressives, such as Move On's Ely Parisier, worry about those kinds of things. So he wondered what happened when his conservative friends on Facebook started disappearing. Wow. He's written a book called The Filter Bubble that explains the problem. Parisier also created a presentation for TED. It's well worth the nine minutes you'll need to view it. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and I hope you will take a chance to view it. Sony has partially restored the PlayStation Network and Curiosity. The systems were shut down a month ago following a security breach. Online games are back. So is the music service and the chat service. All other services remain unavailable, and all services remain offline for Asia. Sony says that personal data, such as names, profiles, addresses, and credit card details, may have been accessed for more than 100 million users. Sony had expected its network to be operational again May 7th, but was unable to meet that date. The new target date for all services in all regions is the end of the month. According to the Bloomberg News Service, Sony hired a new chief information security officer and has increased the number of firewalls between servers. New software is also in place to provide advance warning of intrusions.
Sony will give all users free identity theft protection and insurance for one year, two free PS3 games, and a free one-month subscription to PlayStation Plus. It's not every day that I use a news release. The one I received this week promoted a book by Oriana Small. She's also known as Ashley Blue. Small or Blue is described as, and I quote, a writer and visual artist from Southern California. As Ashley Blue, she appeared in over 300 adult films, directed 17 adult film features, co-hosted Playboy TV's Night Calls Hotline, and won numerous adult film industry awards, including AVN's Female Performer of the Year in 2004 and Best Supporting Actress in 2005. She lives and works with her husband, photographer Dave Naz, and her cat and dog in the Hollywood Hills. That's the news release. Okay, she's a cat person, so I guess I have to follow this lead. This may be an unpopular point of view. Pornography is a fact of life. Whether you consider it good, indifferent, or bad really doesn't matter. If you're an adult, are you allowed to determine how you want to use your body? Well, that probably doesn't matter either. But this fact is obvious. Pornography has been with us since people who lived in caves realized they could create stimulating images on the walls of those caves. So painters have created pornography, as have photographers, videographers, and, of course, the web is a haven for the stuff. There is no artistic medium that has not been used for pornography. So maybe we should just accept it as a fact of life and not suggest that it will be the downfall of civilization. I haven't read the book, and I probably won't, but of the book, one reviewer wrote, Girlvert, a porno memoir, is not well-written, but it is good. It's very good. Orietta Small is not a writer. She's a porn star, and for the most part, her account of working her way up the pornography ladder through her 20s reads, at least technically, like a high schooler's diary. In turns, sentimental, solipistic, blithely ignorant, she makes all the hallmark mistakes of a young writer, redundancy, passive voice, overwrought metaphors in addition to dropping some truly bad sentences. So, if this is your kind of entertainment, you'll find the book, or maybe you already have. If this is not your kind of entertainment, then you may consider mentioning it simply an example of my depravity. But let's go back for a moment to another reviewer's comment, and I quote, I found myself wishing Grovert was fiction so that I could rightly lament the lack of sufficient payoff in the end. Small does indeed achieve some major personal triumphs near the book's close. We're thrilled when she says, Most importantly, I wasn't seeking the approval that I used to desperately need from a variety of men or those who watched my movies. Well, if you're interested in learning more, allow Google to be your friend. <laughs> Comcast and AT&T don't like competition. They have both started placing what they term generous bandwidth caps of around 200 gigabytes per month on subscribers. Now, that is 6 gigabytes per day, so it seems like enough, doesn't it? If you stream video using your Internet connection, it might not turn out to be so generous, though. AT&T has joined the Cap Club and says that it will affect just 2% of its users. True. Today... Netflix, for example, is responsible for about one-third of what's termed peak bandwidth usage, and the average user currently streams about 40 gigabytes of video per month from the service. Now, that's for people who use PCs to view videos. If you're an Xbox 360 user who views videos, the average use is 80 gigabytes per month. And if you stream radio programs, music, or other data from other sources... It's clear that these generous caps will, sooner or later, begin to affect your service. 
but not in a good way. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.